Hello, welcome back to For the People, by the People. I am your host, Sergio Hernandez. And today, we're going to be talking about white queers, some new, or some new candidates, and some previous candidates that I have talked about uh, on my Instagram story and on my social media. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about my thoughts on AOC, her role in transitioning us to a glorious socialist society. I'm joking. Um, but yeah, this episode is mainly just sort of my thoughts on a variety of things. I also kind of want to debut a little segment that will be me spotlighting some candidates that I think are really cool um, and have a really good chance of winning and making a difference. So, first topic would be sort of the conversations that are happening around Encanto. It's, um, oh, and by the way, I'm drinking Sprite and tequila. So if I sound weird, that's why. I just started drinking, but it shouldn't be a problem. Anyways, um, so Encanto. Sort of the conversations surrounding it uh, are being dominated by white queer people a lot of it is just sort of white queers being like, oh, this narrative is matches up with, with my lived experience and, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, my thoughts on this is that white queers are sort of dominating the conversation around Encanto um, and twisting the story's narrative into something that it's not. Now, what I think is very important about Encanto is that this is a story about generational trauma, specifically generational trauma that occurs in a Colombian household. Um, you could extrapolate it to generational trauma that happens in Latino communities, in Latino households. You can even extrapolate it to generational trauma that happens in POC communities, because it gen then definitely does happen. Um, gen generational trauma is a thing that I think every POC person can agree that they have dealt with in some way, shape, or form, unless you're like a pick-me or a very established family in the United States. Um, other than that, I think I've, I mean, I'm personally speaking, I have definitely experienced my fair share of generational trauma. Um, but sort of why I want to talk about it is that this idea of whiteness sort of how white people carry themselves in society is that a lot of them tend to dominate the conversation when they shouldn't be, right? So this is like this idea of being respectful to people who have these lived experiences, listening to them out before trying to dominate a conversation and being like, oh, I know more about you. Um, while that may be the case in some cases, um, in, in this specific instance, white queer people just don't get the sort of generational stuff that goes on in Latino communities, um, especially sort of taking into account uh, Mirabel's story and Abuela's story and how that impacts the family and how that impacts their dynamic. And so I think it really cheapens the message when there are white queers saying that like, oh, Isabella's a lesbian because of her storyline. Or Luisa, 
is a trans woman because she's strong, which is very transphobic, and that's very weird. As this is all coming from like trans white queers, um, or white trans people. Um and so it's just sort of like smaller narratives like that, or like, for instance, Mirabel and Bruno are queer members of the family, uh, because they are sort of the black sheep in the family, they're ostracized by the family. Uh, they don't exactly fit in. Mirabel for not having her gift, and Bruno for, well, I mean, I'm sure we've all heard the hit song. We didn't talk about Bruno, so like, you can extrapolate from that uh, why it is that he is, quote unquote, to lack of a better term, excommunicated from the family. Um, but I think what goes on with these conversations is that white queers tend to dominate these conversations and try to twist the story's message into being something that it isn't. I I just think it like it just shows that like whiteness will try to twist something to fit their narrative in order in order for them to be able to relate because they because whiteness has this inherent need to be able to relate to everything and anything. And I think what white queers fail to realize is that they should take a step back and let Latinos and let POC people enjoy this movie for for the narrative of generational trauma and, and the healing of it. Because I think it's, it's a very important movie. I think a lot of sort of the response from the younger Latino community is one of like appreciation and the older Latino community is sort of like, sort of like, I don't like how Mirabel talked to Abuela, but I really like the songs. Uh, and so I think it's sort of, this schism between Latin between Latinos, where the younger generation like recognizes these like generational trauma stuff, and then the older Latinos refuse to acknowledge it, and instead turn it around and make it seem like Mirabella is a bad guy um, for yelling at Abuela like she did. But that's beside the point. I think what happens is that sort of these conversations about generational trauma they get. Um, pushed away, swept to the side in favor of these conversations about white queerness. And I think that isn't okay. I think that especially when it comes to Camilo's character, where white queers have sort of turned this character into something that he isn't and has started sexualizing him uh, because of it, I think is really weird. I think white queers need to chill. I think they need to stop. White queer stop stop white queers twenty twenty two, um, but I just think that sort of whiteness is not stifling in canto. I think that we, I think that white queers should realize, take a step back, that this movie isn't about them. That it's okay that this movie isn't about them. That it's about. POC struggles, it's about generational trauma that occurs in Latino households, in Latino communities, in POC communities, and I think that they need to relax and chill, because pairing Bruno and Camilo up, or pairing Mariano and Camilo Camilo up is weird, y'all need to stop doing that, and then also, like, the fact that, like, 98% of the characters are related, and yet you somehow, and yet white queers are somehow shipping them together. Like, this isn't, like, last time I checked, Encanto was in Colombia. It wasn't in Alabama. 
And so, white queers, relax, okay? Like, you, white queers are twisting the message. They fail to realize sort of the structural systemic thing in Colombia where they drive out indigenous populations. It's still happening to this day where they drive out indigenous populations. Um, Alma and Pedro being indigenous um, themselves. I mean, you have Isabella, who is darker skinned, who has straight hair, um, which has received its its criticism, which I think is n not valid. Um, and I will briefly touch on that after I finish my thought. Um, but Abuelo and Abuela, Abuelo Pedro and Abuelo Alma, Abuela Alma being indigenous, uh, I think speaks a lot to what's happening in Colombia and what has happened in Colombia. Um, especially when taking into account, like, Julieta, Peppa, and Bruno's gifts were all meant to safeguard the Encanto, making it livable. Like, Peppa and Julieta, Peppa could grow crops, help in crop production. Julieta can heal the sick and injured. Um, Bruno can forewarn of bad things to happen, whether that be threats inside the Encanto or threats outside the Encanto. He would be able to know when things happen, right? And so the first generation was meant to safeguard the Encanto uh, and make it livable. Meanwhile, the second generation was meant to protect the Encanto with Luisa. Um, I mean, her being strong that gives her sort of like this physical ability to physically defend the Encanto from any threats. Uh, Camilo, Antonio, and Dolores would be excellent spies. Um, sort of this like spy warfare that could happen. And then Isabella could be very dangerous, all things considered. I mean, she she could grow plants to, to kill people. So, I mean, like when you take into account sort of Abuela's trauma, what she went through, um, and then take into account sort of how the miracle gave her these children gave her these grandchildren to, to safeguard the Encanto, to make it livable so that Abuela wouldn't have to experience anything like what she experienced again. And for white queers to turn it around and make it into a queer movie, make it into this message about queerness, I think is very not okay because sort of this idea of whiteness having to twist things to make it relatable in order for them to enjoy it. Because I will tell you guys now, I have watched plenty of movies with white leads, and I still enjoy those movies, right? Like, what, like, one of the, or, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, like, I've seen plenty of movies. I've seen Hunger Games, right? Hunger Games had Katniss and Peeta as the main protagonists, and I still really enjoy those movies. It, like... Did I see myself in any of these movies? No, not really. Did I still enjoy them? Yes. And so, if if POC are expected to be able to enjoy movies without seeing themselves in that movie, then I think white people and I think white queers can enjoy a movie without having to relate to the movie. Because whiteness, um, and I just think white queers need to chill, right? So... Stop, stop shipping Camilo 
with members of his family. Stop involving him with any romantic situations. I mean, he's 15, okay? Chill. Anyways, speaking of white queers, Kristen Cinema has recently opposed, or a few weeks ago, Kristen Cinema opposed um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, I believe. Um, and in it, she was basically harping on these whole, like, the values of the Senate being a, bipart a bipartisan structure and how debate is supposed to happen in, in the Senate, which is ironic considering she stopped or is in favor of Republicans even stopping debate from happening. So that's fun. Um, but yeah, I just, white queers, white queers, as in Christmas cinema, white queers in general, y'all need to stop, just, like, stop being weird, and, like, shipping Camilo, and stop being weird, and harb and being a, a harbinger of the death of American democracy, okay? Stop doing those things. Um, but I also wanted to, like I mentioned before, I wanted to talk about sort of my thoughts about AOC, her role in the party, her role in ushering in this new era of, de of democratic progressive politics. Uh, and it sort of stems from a conversation that uh, Sam Cedar from the Majority Report and Jackson Hinkle, which I will be making up names for that isn't his name because I don't care. Um, but yeah, Sam Steeter and, and Hasten Jinkle, they talked about the squad, sort of their role and how and how and how Jack Kinkle, AOC and the squad and progressives in Congress, they are not fulfilling the role that they need to. They aren't keeping their campaign promises and therefore we must criticize them on every single turn. And while I agree with the base aspect of criticizing them, when they deserve to be criticized, I don't agree with attacking them constantly over anything and everything. I recognize that there's only six of them. I recognize that AOC's role in the House of Representatives is very limited. I mean, she is one congresswoman out of 435. That's a total of almost four years. I mean, her second term isn't even still up yet, right? And so she's been there for less than four years. And I just I just think that um, going back to the controversy surrounding the Iron Dome vote, where AOC voted present in approving the funding for giving Israel the Iron Dome technology to defend themselves, to quote-unquote defend themselves. Um, I don't know what they're defending themselves from, but yeah, apparently thinking Palestinians should have their life not taken away is controversial. So that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. Um but I just I just think and I I mean some of you know this, I didn't criticize AOC as much as people probably would have liked me to criticize her or didn't like what I said. Um and so I essentially said that I don't like AOC's present vote, but I also understand it in her reasoning of not wanting to set a light, set a flame, her community, because uh, in New York, and especially in her district, there is a prominent Jewish population, there is a prominent Palestinian population, and so for her to want to protect her community 
from racism and vitriol and, and violence, I think, is valid. And I think that while I don't agree with AOC's vote, by voting present on the Iron Dome vote, I also don't think it's worth sacrificing her and thinking that it's end-all be-all for AOC. I still think that she has a lot to offer us. I think that she has a very bright future ahead of her. I think that she is the heir apparent to the movement that Bernie Sanders started. And while it might take a while for her to take up the mantle, um, due to I her due to my personal belief that AOC should stay in, in Congress for a little bit more, um, rather than throwing her hat in the ring in twenty twenty four, um, I think that AOC still has a lot to offer the movement. I think that AOC still is with the movement. I think that AOC has done so much for the progressive movement that I just don't agree with with John John Hankel about sort of throwing them away and attacking them at every single opportunity just to virtue signal that, oh, I'm so much more left. I attack the squad. I don't even like the squad. That's how left I am. Like, shut the fuck up. Okay? Like, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, Marie Newman... Rahul Grahalva, um, Ro Khanna, and Pramila Jayapal are still some of the most progressive Congress people in the House right now. And in Congress, in general, I mean, we only have Senator San- Sanders and Senator Warren as progressives in the Senate. I would argue that maybe Senator Padilla from California is a new one that we might have, just based on his commitment to fighting for Medicare for All and for the Green New Deal. Uh, when he was for- first nominated, I think it was, either nominated or sworn in. But, I mean, really, I would just say that, like, Senator Sanders is really the only one we have in the Senate that, like, consistently goes up against the Democratic establishment, and I think that these progressives in the House definitely do that, and I think that they pick and choose their battles. I think that forced to vote was stupid and a toxic cesspool of political controversy. I think that would have soured Democratic voters for years on the progressives, uh, on progressive uh, firebrands, on progressive challengers to incumbents. I think we all need to recognize that Nancy Pelosi still has a very high approval rating with Democratic primary voters. And just because she's deeply unpopular with the rest of the country, that she isn't as deeply unpopular as with reliable Democratic voters who turn out in the primaries. I think the last poll showed that she had a 72% approval rating with Democratic primary voters. So I think we need to recognize that shit like force the vote was never going to work, was a empty virtue signal. Um, and I think that progressives in Congress need to be cut slack sometimes. I think that progressives in Congress need to be held accountable sometimes. I think that Pramila Jayapal made a mistake in letting uh, BBB and BIF be split because we are exactly in the situation right now with Build Back Better because of her concession that she made in splitting the bipartisan infrastructure bill and Build Back Better. I think that she needs to be held accountable for that. I think that people have held her accountable for that. I think that people need to hold hold, hold AOC accountable for her present vote. I think that people have held her accountable for her present vote on the Iron Dome. Uh, but I think that meaning meaningless that virtue signaling about attacking AOC and the squad and progressives in Congress 
is stupid. I think people need to stop. I think that they are definitely not above criticism, but I think that empty virtue signaling about how left you are compared to the squad is stupid. And I think that supporting a third party and supporting primary challenges to AOC and the rest of the progressives is stupid. Uh, because, like it or not, AOC and the rest of them are the most influential fighters that we have in Congress right now. And so, like it or not, AOC and the rest of them, they are fighting for us. They will continue to fight for the movement. They have been fighting for the movement, uh, which I will mention briefly after this AOC conversation is done. Uh, but sort of why I talked about this is because uh, giving my honest thoughts about AOC, um, I think a lot of what happens with me in in regards to my thoughts towards AOC is that I recognize that she gets it from all sides constantly, 24-7. And I think I sort of hold on to her as sort of this example that I can do it too, that I can be the next AOC, that I can be California's AOC. Um, and so I think I hold on to her a lot, and I think I sort of don't, or uh, am a lot more charitable to AOC than, my peop than some people might like, is because I sort of hold on to her as this example that I can do it too, that it isn't just a fluke, that she isn't just this one and done, right? I mean, because we have Jamal Bowman, we have Cori Bush, we have other candidates coming up that I will talk about. Um, but I think that sort of my approach to AOC is that I sort of value her being there because I think that she's evidence that I can do it too. Um, and that someone who fights for working people, someone who doesn't compromise their values, someone who is resisting the crushing weight of the democratic establishment from molding her into something that she isn't. I think that she is an inspiration to me. And that's why it might be a little bit more charitable to her than some people might like. And I just, I don't know. I mean, I, AOC just constantly gets it from all all every side, constantly. And I, I recognize that, like, I, I would be in a much more easier position simply because I'm a man. Um, and so I wouldn't be attacked as often as AOC is. Um, or be getting it from all sides because of a man. People tend to be a bit more charitable to men in politics and women in politics. Um, but I just I think she's evidence that I can do it too, and I think that's probably why I am so attached to like defending her and being charitable to her is that she's evidence that I can do it too, and I think I appreciate that, and I think I really just sort of am confident and my ability to help working people because of it. Um, and so that's pretty much it for that conversation. Um, and so next up, I want to spotlight some candidates that I think are really cool. Uh, and so Lucas Kuntz, I think is how you pronounce his last name, uh, from Missouri. He is running for the Democratic nomination for uh, Missouri's U.S. Senator spot. As being vacated by Senator Roy Blunt. Uh, I think he's really cool. Uh, he has the whole um, veteran thing going for him, and so he's a veteran, 
and he's one of those veterans that like come back from a war and realize it's all bullshit uh, and realizes that the military industrial complex is bullshit. Um, and, and so he is a progressive. Uh, he got more progressive on the um, reproductive rights issue. And so he used to be anti-choice, which in Missouri is fair, right, to some degree. Um, at least back then it was. Um, now I would argue that anti-choice Democrats have no place in the Democratic Party, even if Nancy Pelosi disagrees with that. Um, but Lucas, Con Lucas Kuntz um, has become more progressive on that issue. Uh, he is very progressive when it comes to sort of um, the, the stock issue in Congress, and so he's in favor of banning stocks. Uh, or banning members of Congress from being able to trade stocks, and is also in favor of locking Congress people up if they do, which I think is really cool. Um, and so Lucas Kuntz running for the Democratic nomination in Missouri. Uh, some of you might be like, "Well, it's Missouri, right? I mean, it's a red state." Well, like I said before, I think that Claire McCaskill is an utter idiot for losing her Senate race the way that she did. Uh, when you look at the ballot provisions that passed in 2018 when she lost her race to this, the, the seditious and treasonous Josh Hawley, um, the ballot initiatives that passed in Missouri were things like legalizing medical marijuana, uh, expanding Medicaid. I believe there was also a, a uh, ballot measure to raise the minimum wage in Missouri. Um, and so if she were to simply run on those things, she probably could have won, right? And this is the utter fecklessness of the Democratic Party is that they don't realize that these progressive initiatives are vastly popular with pretty much the vast majority of the American electorate, right? I mean, you have in a solid red state that Trump won by more than 10 points. You have these ballot measures with medical marijuana legalization, raising the minimum wage, and expanding Medicare, Medicaid to Medicare, and you have a Democrat who doesn't run on anything, any of these ballot, ballot initiatives, and she loses to Josh Hawley, who, who supported a right-to-work law, who represented Hobby Lobby in, their law, in, in, the, in the lawsuit regarding Hobby Lobby, who is a fake populist. She failed to run on any of these issues and as a result she lost because she's an utter idiot who thinks that she has the authority to talk about how democrats should run their campaigns i mean it's like hillary clinton saying that like democrats should should be wary of this left turn during the midterms right it's like why should democrats take advice on winning elections from utter feckless losers right like Hillary Clinton lost an easily winnable race for a variety of reasons. Claire McCaskill, same thing. And so going back to Lucas Kuntz, what you might be thinking, I mean, Missouri, red state, right? I think that sort of these progressive initiatives that passed in 2018 on the ballot measures shows a good piece of evidence to say that Lucas Kuntz might have an opportunity to win. Him being a a a candidate for the people, him being someone who supports these progressive initiatives, supports people power, supports uplifting the communities in Missouri. Um, 
I think that gives him a good starting point. I think that, while I do recognize that this is going to be a Republican year, um, I do think that Lucas Kuntz has a much more viable shot to the to the Senate seat than any uh any other um Senate candidate that has announced their campaign. Uh and even if he doesn't win this time around, I think that in a democratic year he could possibly win. And so I mean a Senate seat in Missouri sounds pretty good, especially when it's Lucas Kuntz, because that offsets Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin by a little bit. Um so yeah, Lucas Kuntz, Senate candidate for the Democratic nomination in Missouri. Check him out. I think he's really cool. Also, he's hot. So he has that going for them as well, for him as well. Um, next candidate would be Jessica Cisneros. She is running for Henry Cuellar's seat. Um, and you might know her from last or from two years ago in 2018. You might know her from when I talk about her on my Instagram. Um, sorry, but Jessica Cisneros, interestingly enough, worked for uh, Henry Cuellar prior to challenging him. I think that's pretty cool because she realizes that like Henry Cuellar is not the person uh, to represent the district. Um, and so she is also a progressive. People have compared her to, to AOC, she's would would be albeit would be uh Texas's AOC. Uh, she's running for the congressional district, uh Texas's twenty eighth congressional district. Um, I think she is really cool. This is her second time running against Henry Cuellar. She lost by a few points last time. I think she has a really great chance of winning this time, especially with Henry Cuellar being subject to an FBI investigation and raid. Um, I think that she had an excellent chance of winning this time around either way, without, with or without the FBI's raid on, on his house. Um, she's really cool. Henry Cuellar, again, uh, anti-choice Democrat, Trump's favorite Democrat, um, is a obstacle to the Biden agenda. And so, I mean, if you want Biden's agenda to be passed, if you're in, if, if you're a normie Democrat, and if you're listening to this, I although I don't know why you would, or I shouldn't say that. Uh, if you're a normie Democrat and you are somehow still listening to this after my criticism of Hillary Clinton, uh, you should vote for Jessica Cisneros if you're a normie Democrat because Henry Cuellar is, an is anti-choice and he is an obstacle to the Biden agenda. Now, if you are a progressive like me, you should vote for Jessica Cisneros if you're in the 28th Congressional District of Texas. Uh, because she is a progressive, uh, she represents a lot of what AOC represents. AOC has endorsed her, and that's going back to my point of AOC not abandoning abandoning the movement, like so many people claim. Uh, because AOC lost a coveted committee seat on an influential environmental committee, I believe, um, because Henry Cuellar was also in that committee, and he and Nancy Pelosi blocked her from getting a seat on that committee just because AOC endorsed her the first time around. The first time around. And so AOC being like, fuck you, I'm endorsing her again. And endorsing her, I think is really cool. 
Um, and so that just goes to show you that even if people say that AOC hasn't been in the movement, she has not. She has endorsed some candidates this cycle. Uh, I haven't seen... Uh, for the purposes of this episode, I know that she has endorsed two of the candidates that I'm going to talk about. One is Jessica Cisneros. One is the other candidate that I'm going to talk about. Not Lucas Kuntz, um, but another candidate in Texas. Anyways. Um, so yeah, Jessica Cisneros, Texas's 28th Congressional District. She's cool. I watched her campaign ad last night. It was great. I loved it. So, yeah. Jessica Cisneros, great on policy, a progressive, and also not an anti-choice Democrat. The bar is low. At least when it comes to Henry Cuellar. Anyways, the next Texas Democrat I'm going to talk about is Greg Cesar. Uh, he is also cool. Uh, he got endorsed by AOC, so once again, AOC has not abandoned the movement. Um, Greg Cesar is running for Texas's 35th Congressional District. He is a Austin City Council member, and he's looking like he's going to win, at least currently right now. Um, he is polling ahead of the pack. Um, and so give Greg Cesar a look. I think he's really cool. I'm gonna murder, I'm gonna murder, what? I'm going to order some of his merch once I get paid. Um, he goes, I have not gotten paid in two weeks when I should have been gotten paid a week ago. Um, anyways, um, so yeah, Lucas Kuntz, Jessica Cisneros, and Greg Cesar, really cool candidates. Um, getting progressives in Congress is always a good thing. And as far as I know, Jessica Cisneros is definitely the most progressive out of the race. Uh, Lucas Kuntz is cool. Uh, I would say that he is the most progressive out of all the Democrats running right now. Also, the most likely to win. Also, he's hot. So there's that. I mean, John, if John Ossoff could do it, Lucas Kuntz could do it too, right? Uh, and then Greg Cesar uh, running for Texas's 35th Congressional District. Another progressive. Uh, and then, of course, I don't need to mention this, but Nina Turner is also running again. Uh, again, Chantel Brown. And some of you might know, I am very critical of Chantel, uh, or I was very critical of Chantel Brown when she won the nomination. Uh, Republicans funneled so much money into her campaign to defeat Nina Turner. I think this time around, Nina Turner has a very excellent chance of winning. So, Nina Turner, good person. Great to have in Congress. Would love to have her yell at Nancy Pelosi sometime. Um, so, progressives in Congress is always a good thing. Even if Johnny Ginkle says otherwise. Um, anyways, that's going to be it for, for this episode of For the People by the People. Quick recap. I talked about white queers needed to stop. Um, Encanto is about generational trauma, not about queer stories. Uh, and also, Christian Cinema needs to stop. You need to stop. You are not going to win the presidential election against Joe Biden if Joe Biden won runs. You are not going to get people to vote for you. You are causing the death of American democracy. You need to stop. Looking forward to getting her out of the Senate. Um, and then I talked briefly about my thoughts on AOC. 
uh, explained why I'm kind of charitable towards her. Explained that it's always good to have Cong members of Congress who are progressive. Explained that while, yes, we need to criticize them when they do something wrong, virtue signaling about how much more progressive you are than them and saying that you don't even like the squad because of how left you are, um, is stupid and utterly useless. Um, so don't do that. And I also talked about some candidates, Lucas Kuntz, Nina Turner, Jessica Cisneros, and Greg Cesar. Really cool candidates. Go check them out if you live in any of those places. If you live in Missouri, if you live in Texas's 35th or 28th Congressional District, if you live in the Ohio District that Nina Turner is running in, check them out. Vote for them in their primaries. Support them. Go donate to them. Go f volunteer for them. Because what we need is more progressives in Congress. Uh, that's going to be it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode uh, for the people by the people. I recognize this is kind of late. I wanted to do a more consistent upload schedule. I guess I'm sort of following in the footsteps of other content creators of having a more sporadic upload schedule. But I'm going to try to make this a, a bi-weekly, if not weekly, thing from now on. I just, things have been coming up, and I've been kind of living day by day um, some things. And so, yeah, thank you for tuning in to For the People by the People. Uh, I will see you guys next time.